Welcome to Pablo's channel. So yeah, it's still the 16th of October, 11-11. Um, actually no, it's not 11-11, I lied. It's 11-23. 23-23 it's coming at <laughs> um, PM. Uh, so yeah, so by the time we finish this chapter it will be nearing the 17th of October. So let's dive straight into it. We're still playing the Still Point album, Serenity and Waves. Um, so let's go in. So wasps, wasp strikes spider. As we sat over our coffee, I therefore experienced no shock when Mr. Bowcross, without any change of his bright and almost careless tone, remarked as though we had been discussing it all through lunch. We'll pay that second visit to Hergrove this afternoon. The morning's work went perfectly, even quicker and better than I had dared to hope. Just come into the laboratory and I'll be able to show you everything and how ready we are now to finish off this troublesome little matter. One side of me knew he was talking about a desperate and even legal adventure. But that side was simply timid, calculating, bloodless reason. He had put his own mood into my blood, and that was surging about in a state of moment which actually made, I must record it, the word adventure to me, Sidney Silchester. Have almost a ring of attractiveness in it, instead of the very warning sound which I have always connected with such a noun. Mr. Bowcross closed the laboratory door, drew out a chair, cleared, cleared it of books, offered it to me, and himself perched like a powerful bird on the edge of the bench. Swinging round, he picked up a court file drew the cork carefully and handed it to me. It contained, I should say, an egg spoonful of liquid, quite clear but oily. Smell that, he requested. I expected a shock to my nose and only sniffed as lightly as possible. I saw him smile and so put it right under one nostril. Then I drew a deep breath and finally almost touched the end of my nose on the test tube's rim. Still, I could smell nothing. Perhaps it's the vodka or the garlic in the pie that had, has spoiled for the present my sense of smell. I said a little apologetically, for though, or perhaps because, I hate all stenches, I rather pride myself on having a keen appreciation of scent. He smiled back. I had noticed that you have an uncommonly lively olfactory sense. When we first came in here on your pristine visit, you didn't like the laboratory smell, for you began to breathe through your mouth. Though you made no effort to clear your nose, which you would have done had it been simply a little turbinal congestion which was temporarily troubling you. Then, when we went into the library, almost unconsciously, as we passed in coming out, those 
Turgenev novels bound in Russian leather. Another reminder of my Ducal Devoyers. That's D-U-C-A-L-D-E-V-O-I-R-S. You could not resist just touching them and carrying your fingers immediately to your nose to relish the faint perfume. Then why, I said. Because, he cut it, there isn't any. That is just the point of my test. This stuff I tried out for you. You have an uncommonly keen nose and new scent is very suggestible. Expected to be able to detect, expected to be shot by the strength of a very rank smell. And you notice nothing. Try again and don't touch the rim. I snuffed until I must have vacuum cleaned that glass. But not a ghost of a perfume rose to me. What does this mean? I asked. It means, he encouragingly, he encouragingly, if rather cryptically, remarked, that we are far safer than anyone would have imagined that we could be. We have something amounting to the cap of invisibility. What is it? I asked again. Well, he said, as it happens, it is that brown, pungent, so-called disinfectant, with which both you and I have been in touch. It isn't, I blurted out. Or, if it is, it has had taken out of it all the particular smell which made the original so dangerous. To us, yes, and that's half the battle. That's the defence, the parry. Your keen nose catches nothing. Mine isn't blunted. I have tried to keep my fivefold endowment sharp and every point of life sacred pentagram. And scent, like taste, often outstays the present approved senses such as sight and hearing, on which our unbalanced age puts nearly all its weight. I too can smell nothing. But is there anything else to the stuff, I prompted. We can't judge, he began. Then what's the use, I exclaimed. Having made up my mind to adventure, having thrown caution to the wind, and with my courage seeming now unshakable, I experienced a sudden sense of impatience at all this caution and and dawdling. Dawdling, sorry. But he cut me short. I didn't ask you in here simply to confirm my strong feeling that this essence was scentless. You must see that it is positive as well as negative. He corked it carefully again, put the file in the rack anointed cork and glass with what my nose told me was his triple off-scent thrower. The valerium, citronella, aniseed mixture. Next he told me to wash my hands as he washed his at the sink and then dabbed our fingers with surgical alcohol, rubbed them hard and gave them also their anointing. That done, he went over to the other side of the room where there were some small drawers, their fronts covered with fine wire mesh. Pulled out one, picked up a forceps, slipped back a trap, and brought out the forceps with a bee held by the wings. I captured it yesterday, in the early morning, before your Alice called for me. A few pirates were reconnoitring, uh, that's... Uh, 
R-E-C-O-N-N-O-I-T-R-I-N-G. Reconnoitring and a small squadron swooped. They'll never leave us alone, or any bees, as long as they are alive. I stunned them with sound, as you know, and picked up the few who actually fell on the lawn. They are now all dead except this one, though I gave them fine quarters and plenty of food. That, of course, is another mystery of the hive. It is what makes one of the greatest French apists say that the bee is not an individual, but only a loose, floating cell of that largely invisible organism, or field, which we call the hive, and which we are able to perceive only its material core. The honeycomb and the queen. Certainly they will not live if kept from their swarm. And these are no exception. In fact, like most products of fancy breeding, they are evidently in this respect, as in others, more highly strung, more hysterical. While he spoke, he carefully carried the pinioned bee across the room. It, too, was obviously on the verge of death. Its legs moved slowly as if tangled in some invisible web. The antennae drooped. The bright, many-faceted eye already looked dulled. Mr. Bocross put it down on the bench. It nearly fell over on its side and then recovered itself. It began to crawl laboriously, blindly ahead. But it had to stop out of what was obviously sheer exhaustion. Yes, its minute, visible pipeline to the mysterious source of its general life is nearly severed, he said, looking at it. It will be dead in a few minutes, I concurred. Still, he said, we are taking no risks, and rather unnecessarily, I thought, he spent a moment in securing the wings by sipping with a fine brush a drop of spirit gum under each wing and so sticking the wing to the body. So moribund was the insect that it did not even buzz or seem to feel that its wings were now glued tightly to its back. Mr. Bocross waited until the gum had set. The bee remained still. Indeed, the only sign of life was that it did not roll over. I was watching it with considerable curiosity and carefulness, so that I did not see what Mr. Bocross was doing. What I did see was that suddenly, for no apparent reason, the dying bee literally sprang to life. It was as though an electric shock had struck it. Perhaps no electric current could have so could so have galvanised it. The whole small body seemed to swell. The drooping antennae rivered like tiny snakes. A vibration of such intense energy went through it that the wings tore themselves free from their ceiling. That ceiling is an S-E-A-L-I-N-G. Leaving the veined, transparent veins still stuck to the back. The stumps whirred, whirred wildly. Luckily for us, the possessed mite could not rise. The frantic tremor pulsed through it again. The body curled over on itself in a paroxysm of violence. And it was dead the body still remained upright and humped as it had died. I looked up, with rubber stalls on both index fingers and thumbs, 
Mr. Mokos was corking the file again. Why doesn't it fall over? Was all I could find to say. He answered me by picking up the forceps again and taking hold of the dead bee. It required quite a considerable pull, however, to raise the body from the bench. When it came away there, quite clearly, was the long, merger sting torn from the body and left deeply buried in the hard wood. The master passion strong in death, he remarked, dropping the curled up little husk into the refuse bin, under the bench. With his three forceps picking out the sting from the wood, he dropped it into a small crucible glowing red hot above a Bunsen flame. Sorry, a Bunsen flame. One former experience is worth a whole wilderness of warning, he continued, and demonstration is always necessary. We both now know beyond any doubt that in that test tube we have something which is precisely what we must have, a thing the essential nature of which is quite impossible to be perceived by us, while to the particular bee which we have to circumvent it is a flagrant as a cup of vitriol. And now, I said, I realised that the time had come when we must go ahead, apply our knowledge and free ourselves and the world of a deadly pest. I knew that by an hour or so of resolute and obedient action, I should somehow be delivered from a living nightmare and be able once again to go back to my quiet, secure, happy life into the steady sunshine from under his hideous cloud. I felt also a curious sense of assurance, which the demonstration had at least given me reason for. The feeling, I suppose, that a hunter concealed in a tree and armed with the latest sporting rifle must experience when, all unconscious that it is covered, a man-eater strolls into perfect range. I felt that our enemy was as powerful, as malignant and as stupid in his vain ignorance of what he was up against as a tiger. So it was not any longer timidity which made me hesitate. I was hunting for words, though, when Mr. Bowcross, who had been with great care drawing the clear liquid out of the test tube by means of a pipette-nosed flask, his task finished and test tube and flask shut into a hermetically sealed drawer, looked up at me, remarking, the chemical interest of this, of this experiment, and I own that has been quite absorbing in its way, has not made me forget that this problem, though now solved materially, remains morally a very grave one. So saying, he went across the room, throwing wide the window as he passed, and opened one of the wire-covered drawers at the end. A dozen or so bees flew out. I ducked, but they made straight for the window. Looking out, I saw them swoop toward and enter one of the hives on the lawn. They are glad to get home, he said, looking after them. I hate distressing them, blind and obsessed as all bees are, imprisoned in their fossilised dream of instinctive service to the hive. Perhaps I need hardly tell you that time and again while I was making this abstract, eliminating the coarse essential oils, which alone our crude olfactory nerve ends can pick up, Finding the actual essence, partly by help of that odd article and its tables, and partly by testing out my various refinings. 
by using that small cage party on my own placid beads, bees, as tasters or smellers by watching the way they first reacted and then, as the brew became specific, how they became almost unaware when the stuff, then crystal clear, brought near the pirates' attention drawer, made them nearly beat themselves to death against their wire gauze bars. G-A-U-Z-E, by the way. All that time, the moral problem hung like a vast cloud on the horizons of my thought. Then, as the material problems completely cleared out of the way, I turned on this other, and to me, greater problem, and found my mind as clear as made up, and as convinced of its essential correctness as I am that the essence we hold is the stuff we need to fulfil our purpose. What's your solution? I asked. I was myself so puzzled that I, re- that I was really willing to take advice and act on it. I see, he said, looking at me, you are kind enough now to trust me, so I am to ask you one more favour. I must have registered some dismay, but he quickly, he added, it was a very small one, and between ourselves. He's going to seal me to secrecy, I thought. Well, we are certainly in the same boat. I had told him I should be silent. I will certainly promise again, even if I were to investigate gossip, this was the one subject for which my silence could be trusted. I was therefore surprised when he said, I am going to ask you to trust me enough not to ask as to yet how I have solved the moral problem, but to adopt my solution. It will, I believe, help the difficult and still quite sufficiently dangerous part we have both to play if the man whom we have to try cannot see any signs however involuntary, of collusion between us. I have to convince him again, after having shaken him badly, that I am what he still, on the whole, believes me to be, so that he will dismiss me me, as only a possible and peculiarly defenceless victim. Well, it was a relief to follow, not to have to make up one's mind, to know that here was an authority who would accept the responsibility both for the material arrangements and the moral consequences. Perhaps I was too sanguine, too suggestible. Certainly my mood of physical readiness and mental acquiescence was not normal. I learned that later it is, I think, a point of considerable importance for it makes me far less responsible should any trouble arise in the future. All the while he was talking, Mr Bowcross was making preparations with a definiteness and a position which, I must say, kept my sense of assurance from warning, for he evidently foresaw his moves, whatever these might be, as clearly as a chess player of champion rank sees, as the end game begins, the exact positions his pieces will, will take up to bring about the checkmate. There was nothing unexpected in the flax being taken out of its drawer now that all the bees were gone and the window was up again. He wiped the nozzle of the pipette duct with spirits, fitted the small cap on it tightly and then slipped it into his pocket. The next move, however, was puzzling. He went to his filing shelves and collected from a number of periodicals a course or so of loose pages, placing these in a drawer near the window. 
Then he looked at his watch. We are not rushed for time. We should not leave here until 5.30. Timing is, however, important. We must arrive when the sun is low, but it must not be dusk. Still, you always have to give these village craftsmen time. So I said three, and as I supposed, it is now four. I would rather none of us went down to the village. We ought not to be seen on that errand. I left my commission when I returned from you in the gloaming last evening. But though Old Smith is slow, I think he will turn up. I am pretty sure he will have done the task I set him, and I know he will be silent. He's a sort that likes a secret piece of fun, all the more when he has no clear idea what it is all about. Naturally, I had no more notion than the unknown Smith as to the drift of these remarks. A piece of fun sounded almost the most inappropriate description that could be given of our adventure. Silence fell between us, and while I was thinking of some way of trying to find out what he had meant, and beginning even to wonder whether he could have been so mad as to make a confident of an outsider, I heard a limping step aside. Mr. Bokos went at once to the door, shutting it behind him, so I heard only a muffled word or two in the hall. The steps withdrew, and he returned, looking at a sheet of paper. I could just see that it was of quarto, quarto, size and has a printed heading with a good deal of detail on it. After taking it and spreading it carefully Ah oh it's gone back to as it is. Uh, Steve wrote equanimity. We've already had this book looking to you. As it is. After taking it and spreading it carefully on a drawing board which stood by the window, he turned it upside down so that the heading though well out of my range for reading, could now be seen running like a big footnote on the page. Holding it like this, with his free hand, he opened the drawer in which he had put the loose pages and brought out what seemed a similar sheet, though with more writing on it, and this he placed wrong side up and a little above the first sheet. Then, taking a pen, he remained absorbed for some five minutes or so while he made what was, as far as he could, as I could judge, a small etching across what was now the top of the inverted sheet. He considered, considered a moment, compared it with something on the other sheet, and then went so quickly out of the room that I was unable to get a glance at it when he hurried by me. While I waited, I thought I heard the clack of the typewriter for a few moments, but was not sure. He returned with his hands empty, simply saying, Now we are ready. We have just time for a cup of tea. It is waiting for us in the library. We drank in silence. I knew I was at a divide in my life, but my mood remained curiously set, and as I swallowed the tea, for, after all, tea is one of the most comforting of drinks, I actually felt the enterprising temper begin again to assert itself. When Mr. Bocos said, we ought to be getting on, I felt a curious mixture of two sensations. The one was like what I used to feel when taken by an uncle I liked to the zoo. 
He knew one of the keepers in the lion house, so that we were let in behind the public cages and saw the keeper stroke a leopard. It was so pleased that it was both pur purring like a cat and at the same time tearing great splinters with its contracting claws out of the log on which it had it was sprawled. The other feeling I remembered experiencing when at school I was sent into bat. Everyone thought I should be bold at once, but I actually hit a boundary and made 23 runs before I was stumped. I do not recall what Mr. Bowcross talked about as we walked along, but a general impression remains that, like most powerful actors, he was building up his part. I recall wondering whether that might have been his profession before he retired, and that after all, he had not been a doctor. He certainly had quite unusual and extraordinarily convincing ways of taking part. I could not help seeing that now he was sinking himself into the character mood he meant to impose on his audience, although that audience would only be too puzzled and more than a little uneasy men. One not knowing what kind of act he was going to put on, but knowing that it was an act, and the other not knowing even who he was, but suspecting that he might be a fraud. I realised how much depended on his being able to put over that conviction of his actually being the part he was going to play. That this was so vital that even he, his play acting must, in its detail, not be known even to me. For otherwise I will be prepared for his various actions and my awareness of what was coming might destroy that sense of naturalness and spontaneity which he had to create and which I, with my real ignorance, must and could only so second. I remember vaguely that he prattled about flowers and used a lot of technical terms. I don't think he intended me to listen. I know I didn't. He sailed up to hear Grove's door, seemed to pay no attention to the house, for he was apparently still engaged in a vivacious conversation with me, or rather pouring out an excitement story into my uncomprehending ear. He would say frequently, I was right. I thought I was. I knew I was. And yet, who would think it? I simply couldn't wait, nor could he, nor would they. And you realise what that means. You don't surprise men like that into action unless you have a prize find. A perfect natural history museum piece. We were at the door and he had rapped gaily on it, turned his back on and continued chuckling and repeating it in a raised, excited voice. Yes, yes, Mr. Hero will be pleased at this. This means a tidy profit. If he cares for that, as well as no little distinction. The rights are all his. I have, of course, given him every credit, and I'll see he gets it. Most necessary to encourage amateurs, most necessary. The amount of good work lost by not doing so. Simply hopeless. Amateurs are always making discoveries, and the professionals are too jealous to let the real finder have the credit. He swung round in the middle of his stream of high-pitched chatter and struck the door again a couple of sharp raps. There was no reply. No pause came in, uh, came in his flow 
from of one-sided conversation. No sign showed in his beaming face as he scanned mine or played with an envelope in his hand, that he was impatient, that he was actually pressing to his lair, a desperate criminal who was probably lurking within earshot. I do not think he had to keep the mask on, but anything which I should have called self-control. All his surface self now was the amiable, excited old Zanny. Only deep behind any detection looked out the unsleeping vigilance, which was determined that its prey should not escape it. I saw how right he had been not to tell me, an inexperienced actor at best, though I had taken quite 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 part at school and wanted quite a good Porsche, and certainly not incapable of stage fright on on this awkward appearance, not to let me know in any detail the part he was to play. All the better could I fall in with my role, which it was now clear was to be the quite obviously mystified young man compelled to bring up again this absurdly eccentric old scholar. Collusion between us, not even a hunted murderer could suspect. Suddenly, in the midst of one of these excited repetitions, he literally shot off at a tangent, skimming away from the door and round the corner of the house. Before I could follow, I heard him cry, Ah, you're here! Of course you would be. There, there were we, expected to find you in the house, but you've guessed my news. At that point, I myself reached the corner of the house and could see down the garden. Mr. Bocross was waving a piece of paper in Hergro's face, a face in which, quite clearly, a very dangerous look was simply being forced off by what, in any other situation, I would have had to call comical dismay. Quite obviously, he had thought he was trapped. He had seen us approaching, had lurked in the house, and then had stolen out to the back. For what desperate throw I did not like to think, but Mr. Bocross had been too quick for him, must have heard his careful steps on the path and had run round to meet and balk him. That's B-A-U-L-K. The sun was level, the air already cool, the garden still, the hives silent. The queer, desolate place in that quietude had a strange, resigned beauty, as of someone who had decided that death is coming and who no longer dreads or questions it. This sense, however, was certainly not in Hergrove's mind. What I can only call a sort of exasperated relief was springing up in him. He could not prevent himself from believing in the story being forced on him, and in the character of the storyteller, who, even in the play-acting, was so much more powerful than his vain, mimicking, murderous, megalomaniac self. Ah, said Mr. Bill. Wheeling round as I came up. I have given poor young Mr. Silchester such a time. He's my senior in the village, and he said I simply could not go forcing myself on you again. You would call, and then I might return your call. If there was anything pressing, I could write. But I simply could not wait. It wasn't fair to you. You must know. The big people hadn't hesitated, had been pressing. Why, I said, 
Why, Mr. Silchester? Mr. Hugo would never forgive me for delay, and rightly, rightly. Formal courtesy can be real unkindness when good news is being withheld simply for punctilio, for nothing else. I stood by the picture of that confusion which I felt, though feeling it for utterly different reasons than Hugo when he eyed me concluded. It was quite safe for me to look at him. I could only register what he must misinterpret. So I watched his face with a curious sense of my own impropriety, at the horrible incongruousness of the whole scene. I even found myself smiling in a sort of weak, sheepish way, which of course was the most convincing piece of acting possible in the circumstances. Yet it rose in me spontaneously while I watched Hergro's face change from the desperate look of the hunted to the cruel assurance that he was, again, the hunter. That, far from comforting implacable hounds, he was faced by a couple of insane hares, gambling right up to the place where he, the fox, lay hidden. By this time, Mr Bocos had fought his piece of paper so that Hergrove was actually holding it and being made to read it. Directly I got back last night, I felt I must tell the bigwigs, ran on Mr Bocos. So, though I dislike long-distance calls, I rang up Miles. He knows I wouldn't do that at his home too, unless I had real news. I told him exactly of your find. For, to tell you the truth, Mr Hergrove, I shall never bring myself to believe that that, that was chance. I know chance is said to be capable of making monkeys compose all Shakespeare by simply strumming typewriter keys. But I never could believe that. Well, I don't know if this is Steve Roach. Changed to a different one, but it's got no... Let's have a look. No, it isn't it? It's uh, called Dream State Logic Negative Space Space Ambient. Uh, so yeah, but I could never believe that. And anyhow, even for that, I understand it is postulated that they shall have infinite time. Well, well, we haven't that, he went on, breathlessly. Nor did Miles think so. See, he wrote this note and ran out at once and posted it so I should get it this morning. Miles knows. And as he's been so long secretary, a man in such a position can speak pretty definitely for, for the council. He knows their mind, and when they haven't won, he is it. And see what he says. He went on craning over here, grows shrinking arm and tapping the paper with his finger. Full recognition, not only valuable, but important. Very scientific, that, very. Knows the... Uh, what's that? It's called pound... SD, it's like LSD, knows the LSD worth of this, but the scientific prestige of, prestige is, of course, the thing. Tulupia Hegrovia will be in the catalogues in a couple of seasons. You will have name and remuneration. Well, I expect, let's put this down. Well, I expect you will value both, and in this case, both are comfortably considerable. The Dutch are being forced off our market by these by these virus restriction regulations. 
There's a demand now for really new mutations, a demand which makes bulbs fetch really big prices. A daffodil bulb raiser near Hastings has a sport worth £500. Tulips go higher, and once you have one, you may have many, if you have, as it is clear you have, to hand for that kind of thing. You see the institute offers you all facilities. You know it, no doubt. No better place to work. They have sponsored many a brilliant amateur like you, and, if I may say, put, may say, put it, set him up in a highly thriving way. Why I was so precipitate is that the council meets tomorrow, you see. Miles mentions the date. He feels as I do. At this quarterly meeting, they make the grants in aid for new research and offer their laboratory equipment and expert assistance. Greenhouses, planting out plots to selected amateurs. If we can telephone Miles tonight that you are set, it will be a feather in both our caps to have found a brilliant amateur grower who did not even think of applying to the society. Mr. Bocos run off into astriatical chuckles. If I may coin an adjective, beaming alternatively at the paper and at Hergrove's face. Dear old Miles, he ruminated, while evidently expecting at any moment Hergrove's affirmative. You have, no doubt, seen that, that famous sign manual. It can do a lot, oh, quite a lot. Though, as I always tell him, it is a hybrid sprung from an arabesque crossed with an anagram. And the only use of it is not to convey a name, but to foil a forger. Well, I may telephone, yes, mayn't I? Hugo was obviously completely bewildered. The story supported by the letter, he could not refute or reasonably doubt. But it was clear to me that though he believed the story, he was determined to refuse the offer. However possible he felt it might prove, and however firm he was convinced that he must be. You see, Mr. Bowcross, as I have told you, I am not interested in flowers. I am ready to believe you, and Dr. Miles, that I have something valuable here. Perhaps, and here I saw a line creep across his face, perhaps I did not tell you the whole truth last time, and I have a certain knowledge and taste for flower breeding. But I cannot leave here or go up to London or attend the Institute. That is quite impossible. I'll sell the plant outright if we can find an impartial opinion to decide its price. But I have other important interests than raising new varieties of plants. I caught a certain contemptuous defiance and assurance in that last phrase. He was so certain of himself and his security that he was ready to tell us that he had more important work on hand than getting quite a considerable reputation and cash return. He was enjoying even at a small risk of making us suspicious as to what that interest actually was. The tragic irony of telling us to our faces that killing us was more sport for him and of deeper delight than making new forms of life. I am sorry, said Mr. Bowcross. I am indeed sorry that we cannot persuade you to take this line. His voice expressed real regret. It convinced Hergo, but again, he was correct in judging the expression as being sincere and hopelessly fatally wrong in estimating the reason for that sadness. He thought he had, was faced by a fantastic, fanatical fancier, 
trying all unconsciously to make a tiger come into the house and play with a ball of wool. He was, in actual fact, face to face with his judge, who was pleading with him to take a last chance. If, as it seemed to me, it was a spurious offer to escape his doom. It was appallingly thrilling to me, this scene which, with its tragic comic irony, seemed to me, as I watched it, to be more terrible than any trial scene, when the dry mouth prisoner at the bar sees the judge put on the black caps. I could not foresee how it was to end in detail, but I could see that, however fantastic the dressing of the parts, perhaps because of that element of fantasy, because the doomed man thought himself to be the perfectly disguised and quite compassionateless dealer of our dooms, and that the man who pleaded with him could by no possibility be doing what he was actually doing. Pleading with a murderer to turn from his way and holding over that murderer his secret and his fate. Because the murderer looked with now obvious contempt at the man he was driving to condemn him, thinking that that man, his judge, was simply a helpless old fool and the murderer's victim number three. I could see more than the immediate crisis. Because of this terrible ignorance, this complete, hopeless misapprehension of his situation, the scene suddenly filled me with an overwhelming sense of its general significance. Here in this grotesque play of stubborn misunderstanding, black hard-heartedness dooming itself, a mercy pleading as it only could, and maybe only can, in disguise and under symbols, in some way all our human tragedies, all mankind's doom, seemed to be performed before me at that moment in miniature. I was shaken more deeply than by this one savage and cunning brute disaster. It shook me because I recognised suddenly and terribly vividly for the moment that this situation is in some way what we all confront in life. Those people and events which we treat most contemptuously and thoughtlessly are just those which, watching us through their mask of insignificance, plead with us to understand and feel, and failing to impress and win us, have no choice but to condemn us, for we have really condemned ourselves. I own I cannot recapture that feeling, but in honesty I must record these thoughts which then went through my mind. Well, well, Mr. Bocross's crestfallen voice broke a silence which cannot really have been long, but which to, to me seemed to have been indefinite. A queer, timeless interlude between two acts of our dangerous farce. His eyes had been fixed on Hairgrove, with an intensity which I could interpret as a supreme interest. Scientific curiosity blended with a high compassion, and which Hairgrove, as confidently, had to mistake for an unbalanced obsession with some trivial speciality. He took the first step, however. I am busy, gentlemen. And, as I can't agree to your suggestion, I must say good evening. Then, grudgingly, and not seen too suspiciously contemptuous, it was clear, he added in a perfunctory voice, I'm obliged to you for calling my attention to the possibility. He began to turn away, but quite easily and in character, Mr. Bowcross fell in beside him, ambling along down the garden path, carrying his way and imposing his company with that renewed flow of rapid talk. A real disappointment, perhaps you couldn't accept, I realise, 
But I know you realise it was kindly meant, and I'm sure you are interested in what I shall still call your achievement. Rewards you may neglect, but research, I think, you will permit. Ah, there it is. You will, I know, allow me one more examination. The last was little more than a glance. Just enough to make sure, not enough to appreciate. We collectors and breeders, Mr. Hergrove, you cannot imagine how much minute, minute variation a mutational clue fills us. What the layman hardly remembers, indeed scarcely notices, fills us as a new star fills an astronomer. We had come abreast of the few tulips which Mr. Bowcross's skill had somehow turned into a pivot on which he made revolve his whole delicate and dangerous operation. As a breeder yourself, I need hardly tell you, he continued, addressing Hergrove, who stood by uneasily with obviously rising savage impatience, but unable to see how at that moment he could break away. I shall take no liberties with your treasure, a treasure no doubt no less valuable than the ever-famous black tulip. But, and Mr Bocrest bent toward the largest of the blooms, I know you will permit. He paused as though absent-mindedly engrossed in peering into the petals, but really I could see to be certain that he had excited and held the cupidity of the man who, whatever his dreams of avarice and wealth won from murder, was still certainly very hard up. Hergro, who, it had seemed a moment ago, would break clean away, or at least stroll ahead, was caught. Coming closer, lured and drawn as a trout is drawn in a curve by the fine line of the dry fly fisherman. And himself also looking now, rather stupidly, I thought, at the flower. I think that was the first time that I had realised, while I was up against him, that after all, with his considerable cunning, he was really a stupid man. I had only thought him terrible and unknown because I was frightened myself and so could not put myself in his shoes. Nearly all murderers, I began to see, are terrible only because we fear them and appear clever only because of the short start which breaking the rules gives them. We begin by thinking they are ordinary persons and won't violate the regulations of the game until they get a lead for a stroke or two. I know you will permit me, Mr. Bowcross, absent manly repeated, to study the plant closely. Here grows eyes went from Mr. Bowcross to the flower and back again. Obviously he was getting every moment more confused. In his muddled mind, the notion which seemed to have a small but unworking majority was that Mr. Bowcross was about to snatch the precious bloom from its stem and go skimming down the, the path with it. I, apparently, what's this one called about? This is called Stella Drone, Millerway's Space Ambient again. I, apparently, was cast by him for the role of the Interceptor, who, by blundering into the path of pursuit, allowed the thief to make a clear getaway. Mr. Bowcross added still further to the man's confusion by bending so far forward that he bounced himself by putting his hands behind his back. The rape of the bloom was quite impossible in such a position, 
a position in which Mr. Bowcross looked like a giant jackdaw as he turned his head and looked up with a keen eye at Hergrove. Yes, he said, as remarkable as I thought, but the light is failing and the petals are heavily contracted. I have seen enough to memorise the principal features for a brief account, which I shall, of course, submit to you. And, if I might advise, I will suggest that you register your find as soon as possible. If you don't by any chance know the address, I will give it to you as we leave. This stroke evidently persuaded Hergrove that there was something to be got out of this, out of us. At practically no trouble to himself, that we might actually yield a little profit alive before yielding him the experimental interest of our deaths. So Mr. Bowcross prepared his next stroke until nothing could have seemed more natural and unsuspicious. The bulb is, of course, the thing, and as no one but ourselves knows about it, it is as safe in the ground as buried treasure. So I know you won't mind, so as to save a second visit to a busy man if I take the one thing which is needed to make the full description of your wonder, a few grains of its pollen. They can, of course, be of no commercial value and are only of purely scientific interest. I saw that Eargrove knew enough of flowers to know this to be true and that he thought that he had better assent so as to conclude the interview. This would be the quickest way of getting rid of us. He may even have grunted permission. Anyhow, he stood still, looking down while Mr. Bowcross's hands unlocked from behind his back. His right hand was hidden from me, for I was on his left. A few yards nearer the house, and already the light was not of the best. I saw him put something into the bell of the flower, and then heard him give a slight exclamation of annoyance. It's blocked, I could hear him saying, almost to himself. Then, to hear Grove, these patent pollen extractors respect the flower's virginity, but I am not sure that the old toothpick with a speck of cotton wool on the end wasn't better. It was certainly less trouble. These superfine tubes are always getting congested. I must blow it out. I, he turned and I could see in his hand the flask, the nozzle pointed down, apparently engrossed solely in cleaning it in order to make it create a good suction. He proceeded to squeeze the pump again and again. I heard the sharp wheeze and saw the tube quite accidentally. It seemed even to me pointed at Hergrove's legs. Mr. Bocos still shook the apparatus, almost straightening himself in the effort, and evidently so engrossed in getting it into working order that he didn't, did not notice that it was still pointed at Hergrove and now was actually in line with his body. Hergrove stood still, impatiently waiting for what he took to be a small air suction pump, pump to be brought into working order. There it is, said Mr. Bocos, stooping again. That's right, now it is drawing. Only the slightest snuff does it. Once it's working, pollens are a wonderful study, specks almost invisible to the eye. Each have its very distinctive shape, telling you what genus it belongs to, giving you the whole history of a plant. Indeed, with these wonderful fossil pollens, the whole ancestry of genera and orders of plants, but not the plant's copyright in this case. So you are safe. Mr. Hergrove, from our taking anything from you, even unintentionally, 
Our task in coming here, he continued, a less rambling manner coming into his speech, was to make you an offer. An offer which you, on due consideration, refused. He straightened up. Suddenly, the old flower enthusiast completely dropped from him. As a mound of ivy at a stroke may be stripped off and leave visible a gaunt tower which it has concealed. Good night, Mr. Hergrove. Good night, and if in the night you should, I have done my so my I have done so myself and have found such faults well deserving my prompt action. Wake and reconsider your decision. I do pray that you will come straight down to me without a moment's delay. I should really be grateful, more grateful than perhaps I can make you understand, if you could see your way to take the line I have been able to suggest. I know I must seem to you in an absurd old man, fanatically fussing about what isn't his business, and you may even think pleading with sentimental urgency for the protection and preservation of a queer, <coughs> of a queer and outwardly not important variety of life's many manifestations and mysterious forms. It is worth, you think, being so particular. Why trouble to preserve everything that wants to live? Are things so important? Believe me, it is not the cash nor the reputation which I feel to be at stake. All life needs protection, encouragement, defence. We can't be indifferent or ruthless, can we? He trailed off rather lamely, and I was glad enough. Here grows patience what was at an end. No shadow yet passed over his assurance that we were in his power. Not he by any possibility in ours. He turned rudely on his heel. I waited more time than I can spare, he remarked over his shoulder. Shut the gate as you as you go out. He swung off down the path towards the fields. Mr. Bocross said nothing. I followed him as he walked swiftly past the house, reached the gate, opened it, carefully relatched it, and went down the road. So there we go. That was a big chapter, wasn't it? Uh, chapter eight. The Wasp Strikes Spider. Okay, I think I'm going to stop for tonight because I didn't expect it to go so long. But we are near it, the end, so I might end up finishing reading it tomorrow. But yeah, uh, next chapter will be chapter nine. Fly Breaks from Wasp. So I'm presu- the fly is Sydney Silchester. The Wasp is Mr. Bowcross. And the uh, Spira. Mr. Hairgrove. 